Well, before I get into the day's uh, uh, scripture, let me, let me just take a moment and pray. Again, it's been a while since I've done this. I don't do this every weekend. Uh, it's a thrill for me to be here, but I want to just give my time uh, and ask God to be with us. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have allowed us to be here. This is your day. We're excited to be here this morning to hear from you as you share um, through us this word, Lord. Help us to apply it to our lives. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's something we need to hear. It's something the world needs to hear. And it's uh, um, just, uh, I just pray this morning that you make an impact in our lives as we, we listen to this. We pray for those that might not be here this morning listening on, on, on uh, the internet. Lord, be with them. Meet the needs of the people here. And Lord, we just uh, pray that you would bless um, all that's said and done. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke 18, 9 through 14 is, is probably a simple parable for most of us. And yet it has some profound theological implica- implications. Um, I'd like to... I like that, you know, when I was thinking about this passage, Scott gave me the opportunity to speak. I was thinking and, and watching the news, and Katanji Brown Jackson was sitting in the Senate subcommittee or the, the committee uh, for confirmation hearings in the U.S. Senate. And, you know, to me, it wasn't important, it really wasn't important whether she was black or whether she was female. But I want to know, what was her judicial philosophy when it came to interpreting the Constitution? Would she have what's called a living constitutional view of the, of the Constitution, one that ebbs and flows based on the views and values of America? Even if, an amendment, um, even if there was no amendment that addressed the issues, she would be free to decide and interpret based, again, mostly on the morals of America, or would she have the original intent view, which she would go back and actually look at the intent of the writers of the Constitution and try to decide law based on those founders of the Constitution. And so when we come to this passage, I kind of think that we have an opportunity here, we have an opportunity to see the judicial philosophy of Jesus Christ, how he's going to rule, who, who he's going to determine is right and just. Because one day we're going to stand before him. And, and I'd like to know, I'd like to be sure that I am right before God. Acts 17.31 says, For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. Jesus Christ one day is going to be our judge. One day we're going to, I know Scott last week referenced the fact that he went to court to get tax exempt for the missionary house. Well, one day we're all going to sit in court and the bailiff is going to open the door and say, All rise, the most honorable son of God, Jesus Christ, now presiding. And we're all going to face him. Romans 2.16 says, This will take place on the day... When God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares, can you be right with God? Can you know, even though the Islamics uh, 
Islamic religion you can't know. The Buddhism uh, religion you can't know. The Confucius you can't know. The um, uh, Shinto and, and all the religions of the world are based on works. But you never know whether you're going to be good enough. But we in, in Christian know, can know for sure. And uh, I think, again, that's why this passage is so significant uh, and has theological implications. Now, before I, again, before I get into this passage, and we read it, thank you, doctor, for reading this, I want to give you some background. So every day during Jesus' life and Jesus' time, the priests would get up in the morning, and usually by 9 o'clock, uh, 9 o'clock in the morning, and then again at 3 o'clock in the morning, the priest would take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, and he would take it up to the mound, the temple mound. And people would start to gather around that time. And he would offer the sin offering. He did this twice a day at 9 o'clock in the morning and then again at 3 o'clock in the morning. So it would be a formal ritual. The priest would take the lamb and sprinkle some blood on the outer offering as people watched. And it was kind of like a worship time, prayer time, praying for the sins of the nation, praying for your own sins. And then with great fanfare, horns would sound and, and cymbals would clash. And the priest would go into the inner court and sacrifice the lamb. And while he was doing so, it gave everybody on the outside of the temple an opportunity to pray again. And if you know anything about the Jews, they don't pray silently. They, they pray out loud. They're all praying out loud at the same time. And that's where we find this story as Jesus tells it. Now, Jesus in uh, verse 9 says, uh, it's kind of an unusual thing, but he gives a description of who this parable was meant for. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and those who looked down on everyone else, there there are those who had confidence or felt like they were already righteous, that Jesus was addressing this to. And because they felt like they were set apart or more righteous than other people, they also looked down on everybody else with contempt. Of the 39 parables throughout the, the Gospels, there's only a few that give this uh, preamble or description of who uh, the parable was for. But obviously the parable's also for us because most of us fall into one of these two categories of either uh, feeling righteous I'll explain a little more later. Or uh, uh, sometimes looking down on one another. I'll I'll, I'll come back to that. But I want to say that throughout the history of the world, the number one falsehood of all people is the fact that they believe that they're good enough to go to heaven. You know, I've listened and I've sat in jails and, and people come and tell me, Kirk, I, I hope I'm still good enough to go to heaven. I've heard other people in church sometimes say, I, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven. Uh, it's not a matter of being good enough. And, and, and this is why Jesus was addressing um, these two. So the case before us, if I could call it a case, is the Pharisee, 
is one defendant and the tax collector is the other. And case is started, two men stand before the judge. And um, uh, this is what Jesus said. I kind of wonder even if maybe Jesus actually overheard these guys praying, whether it was that morning or the day before or the day before that. Was Jesus actually there at the temple and heard these guys pray? Uh, it'd be interesting to know. But two men went up to the temple to pray. Again, they went up to the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is the highest place in the city to pray. And it's kind of ironic that they were going up to pray about the sins of the nation. And yet one was going up thinking he's already righteous, while the other was thinking, well, I'll never be righteous. So let me give a, a brief description and then about these two defendants. The Pharisee was perceived to be the most righteous in all the community. You know, we, we here in our time know because we've read the scriptures that the hypocrites were, were uh, the, the, the Pharisees were hypocrites, that they were disliked by Jesus. They disliked Jesus at the same time because he was correcting them. Um, but in their day, in first century in first century, uh, in the first century, the Pharisees were seen as the holy men of the community, the righteous ones, those who were trying to keep the law. These men were the gatekeepers of all Judaism. Uh, the word Pharisee itself comes from Pushim, Hebrew word, that means separated ones. Again, because they felt like they were separated, they also then didn't feel like they could dine or hang out with those that were lesser than them or less separated for the purpose of, of, of God. Um, most were well-known legal experts. They knew the law well. They had applied the Torah in a way as to put a hedge ar around the law. So um, you have the law here, and then they put a hedge, extra laws around the law, to try to protect the law, whether it was in regulations concerning food, what food they could eat and what food they couldn't eat, the Sabbath rule, what you could do on the Sabbath and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath, and other regu regulations of the law. If you want to look at a passage uh, that, as Jesus addressed this, it would be Matthew 15, 1 through 20. I won't go into that today, but Matthew 15, 1 through 20 talks about these traditions that the Pharisees set up to protect the law. They thought they could bring back the days of David and others if they just followed the law and not broke it. On the other hand, the tax collector was perceived to be the worst of sinners. They were, they were hated in biblical times. They were regarded as sinners. They worked for the Romans, and the people despised the Romans. They were often, though, most... Uh, most of them were very wealthy men. If you look at Zacchaeus, he was a very wealthy man. <coughs> but again, they, they often overcharged people, pocketing this, uh, the surplus. And in the, the Levitical writings, they were classified as robbers. So let's get into the prayers. Verse 11 and 12 says, The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Now, if you have the King James Version or an older version of the Bible, 
it may, have, it may say the Pharisee stood by himself. But really, this is the correct rendering. And after much study, uh, many scholars agree with this, that the Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. with the word God, he started on the right track, but then he got carried away five times. He uses the pronoun comparing himself to what he's done versus actually making a prayer to God for his own sin. Again, he feels like he is already righteous. He's already holy. He doesn't need to ask for his own uh, forgiveness for his own sins. Um. And again, five times he uses the word, uh, the, the pronoun I. He compares himself to the tax collector. He doesn't compare himself to God or God's standards, which, again, he knew the law. He should have known that if you break one sin, you basically have broken them all. If you break one law, you've, you've break, broken them all. You know, and I want to just say, you know, I got to be honest, we all do this at times. I mean, there's times I come into a church and I think, oh, I'm the missionary. I'm set apart. Uh, no, that's totally wrong. I'm just as much as a sinner as any anybody else. I think the same thing sometimes driving the car on Sunday morning. You see people who are going to, to uh, the grocery store or mowing the lawn. Well, they've missed the mark. They're, they're much lower than me because I'm going to be holy and righteous at church. And again, that's that's to- that may be totally wrong. And when I go before the judge, uh, they may not, the Lord Jesus may not see it like that. He also justified himself with ex- external acts of righteousness, fasting. You know, they fasted on the fifth day of the, of the week and the second day. Why did they do that? Because they believed that Moses went up to Mount Sinai on Thursday and then came down with the Ten Commandments on a Monday. So they would always fast on a Thursday and a Monday. And the same thing with giving. Um, they gave a tenth of all they, they got. They would even give a tenth of the smallest little herb that they grew, perhaps in their garden or got. So, again, trying to keep the law to somehow assume that that made you holy and just before God. The tax collector, on the other hand, and I love the tax collector, he stood at a distance. I love the story about the Moody Bible Institute Missionary of the Year. I think it was last year. She was a woman who, for 40 years, had served in India. And somebody came up and asked her, well, why did you, why did you do it? Why did, God, why did you feel called to India for all those years? And she, set, kept, she said, I kept thinking about Jesus feeding the 5,000. You know, he didn't just feed the front roll. He fed everybody, even the disfranchised in the back and those that didn't feel like they could come forward. Jesus fed. And that's why I went to serve for all those years. And this is, this is that. He stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, beat his breast, and said, God, have mercy on me. If you look at the word um, beat his breast, it only occurs three times in Scripture. Luke uses it twice, and it's pretty significant. If I want you to look at uh, chapter 23, Luke 23, 48. I, I'm sorry I don't have it up here, 
But uh, Luke 23, 48, I'll read it. I'm going to start with verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, through your hands I commit your, my spirit. When he said this, can you still hear me? Uh, he breathed his last, his last. The satyrian, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Isn't it significant that this tax collector also his breast. The shame and guilt that he had was demonstrated in his look to heaven. He beat his breast. The, it's interesting, the Persiac version of the manuscript uh, renders it this way. He fell on his knees and beat the earth with his head, demonstrating his anguish and sorrow for his sins. This was the tax collector. He acknowledged that he was a sinner. And he simply asked God for mercy. That's it. That is all it takes. I tell you that this man, verse 14, rather than other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I, I don't go into great detail about uh, the last sentence there, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. You know, the scripture repeats that line in a number of places, and it's kind of interesting to go back and look if you have time. Um, but the Pharisees invented laws just to keep the law, creating an appearance of holiness. Again, when Jesus talked about the Pharisees, he talked about the cup, how they washed the outside of the cup to make it appear like it was clean, but then they failed to wash the inside of the cup. Also interesting, Matthew 5.20 says, Unless your righteousness, righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The people must have been shocked. This is the reverse of everything that they understood. They thought these men were the holy ones, the righteous ones. They didn't realize that uh, when Jesus came, he was the substitution for their sin. The Pharisees operated out of a system that deemed good works as righteousness, but you cannot merit or earn your own righteousness. Justification is through Christ alone. By seeking him and confessing your sin and humbly acknowledging your desperate need for his mercy. You know, again, the verdict was a total reverse. The tax collector went home justified. That word in verb form, is the same word, same root word, as the adjective for righteousness. Jesus was declaring the tax collector to be righteous. The same word is also used, and I'm just going to read it quickly here, although my uh, eyesight is not the best it could be here. Um, 
The same word is used in Luke 16.15. I'm going to start with verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourself. They are the ones who justify themselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in the eyes in the, in God's sight. Again, he he clearly pointed out through all of the gospels, all the scripture, that the Pharisees were justifying themselves just for the sake of applause and for the acknowledgement of men. You know, as we think about the tax collector, God could own. Then, the parable tells us that there is forgiveness, however, if they're willing to repent of their sin. Declared righteous when we humbly confess our sin. The parable invites all men to find freedom from guilt, shame, and sin by throwing ourselves into the arms of Jesus. Believe, the, believe me, there's nothing more freeing. It's, it, it's such an exciting thing to see a young man, a young woman come to Christ and uh, shake off the sin and guilt of the past and start life anew. God is waiting for us. He wants to lead us home, away from the bondage and sin of shame. How will you fare when you stand before Jesus Christ on that judgment day? Again, the tax collector did something so simple, but he was, he, was, he was authentic in doing it. He humbled himself and prayed. Hopefully all of us. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this word. It's impacted my life. I've, uh, at times, I know that we're like the tax collector and thinking that we're above, we're set apart just like he was. We're above or beyond uh, other people and, and that somehow we've already earned our righteousness, but we're still working at it. Um, every day goes by, Lord, we need to, to put our eyes upon you and... and um, trying to avoid uh, continuing on in sin, but yet having to confess each day that, Lord, we too have sinned. Um, I pray that uh, we might be able to take this and uh, go where Jesus went to those that still need him, that one day will, those that will one day stand before him and not have an answer for the reason um, for their sins. Lord, I just pray that uh, you would continue to, to be with us and, and put these things in our mind. Help us, uh, help us, Lord, change so that we can be more like you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.